Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Now, uh, by way of introduction, as you probably know, we humans shared a common ancestor with the orangutan about 13 million years ago, with the gorilla about 8 million years ago, with the chimpanzee and bonobo about 6 million years ago, and with the our closest extinct evolutionary cousin, the Neanderthal, about half a million years ago. And you'll be hearing more about a lot of this along the way. Now, uh, I realize this is an audience that ranges all the way from really hardcore geneticists that know a lot more than I do, all the way to educated lay people who are interested in the topic. And so, therefore, I hope the experts will bear with me while I give a sort of a general, very brief introduction to Genetics. Uh, one of the problems we face in Carta is that we have so many specialties and so many complexities and so much jargon, and that uh, even amongst ourselves we have trouble keeping up with all the, all the jargon. So I'm going to just give a very brief introduction and apologies to anyone who feels that it's too simplistic. As you know, there's DNA in the cell, both in the mitochondria and the nucleus. We're mainly talking about the nucleus today. Chromosomes, and where the DNA is packaged up in, by histones. And if you look at the level of uh, molecular detail, you can see the double helix with these base pairs that keep the DNA together and which uh, constitute the genetic code. And you hear a phrase like five prime to three prime, and that really tells you which strand and which direction you're running in. Now, there is this reductionist view of biology that DNA makes RNA makes protein, and there's a tendency to therefore think that cells, tissues, and organisms emanate from this simple paradigm. But that's like saying that if you have Betty Crocker's cookbook, you have a meal like that. It's a lot of other things that happen along the way, obviously. So a more complete view of biology would be that you also need lipids, you need glycans, you need these to come together in glycoproteins, glycans, glycolipids, cells, matrices, tissues, and organisms. Of course, things feed back to DNA and RNA. But don't forget the microbes and parasites, the physical environment, the diet, and in the case of species like humans, the cultural environment. So this is a more complete view of biology. But today we are going to be a bit reductionist. We are going to focus mostly on DNA, RNA, and proteins, but keep the bigger picture in mind and occasionally refer to the bigger picture. As you know, uh, you, each of you have chromosomes derived from your, from your parents, and if you're male, you have a y, a y instead of two Xs. There's a mitochondrial DNA, which uh, is in all cells. And during sexual reproduction, you get uniparental clonal inheritance of Y and mitochondrial DNA, and recombination of other chromosomes can take place. So some very basic terminology, a locus on a chromosome in a genome. The genome would be all of the sequence in, in, your, uh, in your genome. So you can have a genetic locus, which can, they can have multiple loci, you'll hear this term. You can have alleles of the same gene in which you have alternate forms found in the same place in the same chromosome. You can have haplotypes, which are combinations of alleles at multiple loci that are transmitted together on the same chromosome. And from a genetic locus, very often you'll find a gene, but the gene is broken up into these exons in terms of the coding region for amino acids, and you'll hear about enhancers and promoters that affect the gene. And you translate this DNA into RNA in a primary transcript, but then you have to take this messenger RNA, and you'll hear about the five prime untranslated region and the three prime untranslated region at either end of these genes. And this messenger RNA has to undergo splicing to develop a process transcript and give you a protein. 
But the big new elephant in the room over the last few years is the fact that a lot of our RNAs are not coding and are doing a lot of very interesting things, very important biologically, you'll hear about that. So with that very brief overview, obviously I've left out a lot of terminology, but just a few, few words to keep us uh, in thinking along the lines of uh, these things. We're going to have the genetics of humanness, and one of the things Elaine and I decided is to make the program sort of in this direction generally. We're starting at the big picture level with entire genomes, and then we'll work our way through segments of genomes, and then uh, you start hearing more about RNA and accelerated regions of genome, gene regulation, networks, and eventually drill down to a few examples of a single couple of single genes. And not shown in this is that the, in the final closing remarks, Pascal Gagneau will uh, put things a little bit into perspective by looking at the, at the even bigger picture. So with that general introduction, I think we'll get started. And uh, the first speaker is uh, Elaine Mardis from Washington University in St. Louis. She's going to talk about the orangutan genome. Well, thanks very much, uh, Jeet, for the nice introduction and for the opportunity to, to uh, present some work that we recently published uh, earlier this year in Nature. So um, this is an overview of what we were able to identify with an extensive analysis group uh, after sequencing the orangutan genome. So this, of course, is a multidisciplinary approach to analyzing this genome. Uh, it took an international effort to really pull all of this together, uh, combining over 25 participating institutions with investigators with a full spectrum of genetic, genomic, evolutionary, and other uh, uh, areas of interest uh, who were able to help us mine through this uh, large genome uh, space and really make sense out of all of it. And I'll present those findings today. In case you're interested, the, there is a, a comparison to be made here between the distribution of genome analysts and the distribution of orangutans. So the, the, the analysts are shown in blue, the orangutans in yellow and, and pink. And uh, so there's quite a disparity there just right off the bat uh, to understand this genome. So as many of you know, the, the orangs are uh, native to these uh, two islands, Borneo and Sumatra in yellow, Borneo in red and Sumatra in yellow. There are two species, the Bornean and the Sumatran, not surprisingly. And the Bornean are even divided into the three subspecies that you see here. In total, this is a very uh, stressed population group, regardless of which one you're talking about. They're an estimate of about 50,000 Bornean and only 7,000 Sumatran individuals remaining in the wild. Um, and as uh, according to these very small numbers that are ever dwindling, we see that the Borneans are listed as endangered, the Sumatran orangs as critically endangered. So part of this process has really been caused by the extreme loss of habitat shown here. Uh, both orang species are under pressure from the encroachment of man, as illustrated by these maps of Borneo. And really, the pace of habitat loss has been accelerated and driven by many forces, uh, including the incredible expansion of palm oil plantations, these largely in an effort to generate uh, biomass for um, alternative energy sources. Uh, and I think this really, um, the remarks that I'll talk about today and our analysis of the orang genome overall really highlights the importance of capturing the genetic diversity now so that we can um, somehow aid the, and encourage the continuation of these species throughout time, if at all possible. 
This is just the fuller story of the orang in terms of comparative and demographic analysis published in Nature earlier this year, as I mentioned, uh, for you to look at for more details. And some of the figures and all the information that I'll show you is essentially distilled out of this uh, multi-international, uh, multi-lab international effort. So uh, just a little bit of basic background on orangs, both in terms of their history as well as their genetics. So the orang is really a Malaysian term for man of the forest. Um, These are really the only primarily arboreal great ape species and the only Asian great ape that remains. These uh, live in the vast majority of their lives in the jungle canopy. So um, they use the jungle for shelter, food, and transportation. Previous uh, talks that I've heard on the morphology of orangs show that they're highly adapted for swinging through the trees, if you will, both from the standpoint of musculature and skeletal uh, conformations. And this, of course, allows them to avoid large predators, a couple of which are listed here. And in the very stressed, um, small environment that they're now allowed to live in, they really uh, are thriving only in this jungle swamp that's inhospitable to man. It's their sole refuge. The diet is composed mostly of fruit, um, which means good and bad things. They're subject to boom and bust variation and seasonal abundance. And they do, uh, as I'll talk about uh, in subsequent slides, have an ability to um, reduce their energy usage in addition to having, having a fairly low-key lifestyle in general. And uh, in particular, they have a very low resting energy usage rate among mammals. So uh, more on that. The, the orangs have the longest natural lifespan, both in the wild and captivity, that's shown here. And in particular, they also have a very slow growth and reproduction rate, um, the longest birth, uh, interbirth interval uh, known among mammals of about eight years average uh, duration. The orangs are able to create and adeptly use tools, and I found this interesting. There's actually a geographic variation in tool usage, which is more of a cultural uh, learning aspect, we think, than anything. This is just a book uh, among orangs that has other interesting um, information in it about uh, the orangs and their lifestyle, if you're interested. So from a genetic standpoint, why study the orangutan? Well, in particular, it's the most distantly related great ape species with respect to humans. And this is going to, as I hope to demonstrate for you in the next few slides, provide us some very insightful perspectives on our own evolution. The orangutan lineage diverged about 12 to 16 million years ago from the common ancestor of all great apes. And in particular, the Bornean Sumatran orangs uh, diverged from one another about 400,000 years ago. And in particular, we think that the Asian distribution and the arboreal lifestyle that I mentioned earlier uh, subjected the orang to divergent population genetic and selective forces when compared to African apes. So as I'll walk you through now, the genome sequence that we were able to assemble and analyze allows us to look at orang-specific features, so there's value in that. And then also use these as a very important outgroup, as I'll also illustrate, uh, to show us trends across both great ape as well as human evolution. So the reference genome was derived from Susie, who is shown here. She is a Sumatran orang housed at the Gladys Porter Zoo in Texas. The DNA obtained from her blood was uh, obtained during a routine uh, veterinary care visit, and from this we were able to um, sequence to sufficient depth using uh, first-generation sequencing technology, capillary sequencing, a sufficient level to assemble her her genome uh, to relatively high quality. 
In addition, and as I think you'll hear from other speakers uh, a bit during the day, um, the nature of genome sequencing is changing quite a bit with what we call next generation sequencing technology. I'll not dwell on that, but tell you that we use that type of technology along with very important DNA resources that we were able to obtain from Oliver Ryder at the San Diego Zoo. Um, five Bornean and five Sumatran orangs, a mix of males and females, to further understand the diversity in these species relative to the sequenced individual. We utilize this using Illumina sequencing technology. Illumina is actually located here in the San Diego area. And um, this allowed us to generate these data from these 10 additional genomes for a relatively small amount of money per genome, as shown here, relative to what it costs to sequence the whole genome of Susie. From these data, we were able to develop a database of polymorphisms, so single base differences between Susie's genome and any other of the orangs that we uh, sequenced. And this is going to be, we think, a very important resource moving forward, not only to understand the divergence between the two species, the Bornean and the Sumatran, as well as their relationship to human, but also to provide a deep resource for conservation efforts and diversity studies. So what did we learn from sequencing the genome? There's sort of a laundry list thrown up here for you if you're able to digest it in the time that I have the slide shown. But I, I actually will delve into some specific details about what we found as shown here. In general, we um, found the genome to have unique features compared to the chimpanzee and human genomes. In many ways, as you read through this list, you'll see the word slow. And this, I guess, if one's lifestyle can recapitulate one's genome or vice versa, um, this is sort of a harbinger um, given the relatively uh, relaxed pace with which orangs uh, go through life. In addition, as I mentioned earlier, we um, uh, use this information, the Bornean-Sumatran comparison, to model the speciation uh, events. And we were able, in this regard, to show a much more recent split than previous estimates, as well as other uh, specific features. So I'll go through some of those now for you. Phylogeny is always of interest to us, of course, and sequencing this outgroup is important, as shown here. Orangs are about 97% identical to humans at the genetic level, and if we compare the two species to one another, about 99.7% identical. And this is roughly comparable to the bonobo chimpanzee distance that was mentioned earlier. I should point out that both the bonobo and gorilla genome projects are underway, and so we'll have a very very, very full picture of primate uh, great ape evolution as we uh, move forward in time. Earlier in time, the uh, there was a description of an inversion event on the orang chromosome using uh, conventional cytogenetic approaches that was described as a so-called neocentromere. In our work, however, in the uh, orang genome analysis, we were able to show that this was really not a new centromere, but rather um, just a repositioning event of the existing centromere shown by the orderly uh, format of these markers on the chromosomes um, shown here. So this is not an inversion in this is something that we were able to show uh, coming out of the genome sequencing data along with other features of these um, particular neocentromere areas. We also looked very carefully at gene family evolution. This is a way uh, where you look uh, between primates and other mammals to evaluate gene gain or gene loss events per family of genes in a, over a millions of year period. 
And what we found coming out of this was that the highest turnover rate in gene families is observed in the chimp and human lineages. By comparison, the orang lineage has a rate about comparable to the rhesus macaque, which is half the chimp-human rate. So their overall gene family evolution rate also seems to be quite slow, as uh, shown by other features of the genome. We also use this type of information to look for evidence of positive selection in specific gene families. Um, this is maybe a sign of what makes a species unique. The orangutan branch, because it's this outgroup uh, relative to humans, gives us an improved power to detect these genes that are rapidly evolving. So this analysis was basically done across 12,000 genes that were found to be shared between dog, rhesus, orang, chimp, and human genomes, as shown here in the full analysis of these uh, uh, genes um, in terms of where we could detect um, orthologs and how they had changed over time. In particular, one of the types of genes that we identified as being uh, dramatically different are these six genes that fall in this uh, lipid metabolism pathway. Um, these all have moderate to strong signals of positive selections in primates, and in particular, they are known to cause these significant lysosomal storage diseases in humans, uh, some of which are very well known, uh, especially in, in, in human genetic circles. Um, and this uh, may indicate a link between rapidly evolving genes and specific neurobiological pathways, so therefore uh, merits more investigation. And lastly, what do orangutans tell us about ourselves? Well, first of all, the slow evolution of the orang genome highlights the acceleration of structural rearrangement in our African ancestors. In, in other words, not all great ape species followed the same formula for evolution. This further emphasizes the close relationship to us between humans and, and chimps at the genetic level, although if you look at the chimp genome uh, relative to the human, it's even more highly uh, rearranged uh, when we compare that to the ancestral species. Uh, in addition, the, the orangutan outgroup, as I've described, helps to identify rapidly evolving genes in primates. And this interesting example in lipid metabolism pathway genes, uh, I think, it, uh, highlights that, especially in terms of our propensity to diseases that are not found in other uh, great apes. The genomic data provide a granularity and resolution on genomic events that surpass the cytogenetic observations done years ago, and I illustrated that with the neocentromere uh, identity that we came up with. And lastly, and I think as importantly as anything, um, we hold the future of the orang species in the palm of our hand, and it would be great to be able to take these uh, genetic diversity uh, information from the SNP database that we've developed to um, uh, guide uh, critical management decisions um, that can be obtained um, by sampling those orangs that still remain in the wild. So I'd like to thank you for your attention, and in particular to acknowledge here the Orang Genome Analysis Consortium, without which all of these um, amazing analyses and many that I didn't have time to talk about were done. I especially like to acknowledge my good friend Oliver Ryder and, and his sidekick Leona, uh, without whom we wouldn't have had these important uh, Bornean and Sumatran Orangs to compare and, and provide the wealth of the SNP database. And I'd like to especially acknowledge my postdoc, Devin 
Locke, who is uh, front and center. He's first author on the, the paper in Nature uh, and was really integral to bringing this analysis team together, writing up the results and seeing them uh, published uh, earlier this year. And especially to thank the NHGRI for their funding of this and uh, support of this effort. Thanks very much. I think we'll move on to the next talk, talking about a couple of extinct genomes, the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. All right. So, um, yeah, I'm Ed Green from uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, and I'm going to talk to you about the genomes of uh, our closest extinct relatives, the Neanderthal and Denisovans. So... In asking this question about uh, humanness and human uniqueness, we uh, tend to define this as how we are different from the things that are closest to us. And our closest living relatives, as we heard, are the other great apes, the chimpanzee, bonobo, the orangutan, and the gorilla. And this is a, a useful way to define human uniqueness because there are these things that are evolutionarily pretty close to us. The chimp and bonobo, as we've heard, are about six million years diverged. If we go back in time, six million years, there's no chimpanzee and there's no bonobo and there's no human. There's only the common ancestor of these two. And in the time since then, the last six million years, we have become different from this common ancestor as the chimpanzee has become different from the common ancestor. And that's one way of saying how we are unique. What, what are these last few changes that happen since our common ancestor with chimp? We can carefully observe chimps, look at them and look at humans and make long lists and interesting lists of things that differ between humans and our closest living relatives. And these lists then are in some sense an answer to this question. What is it that is unique about humans? How are we um, different? Because every human individual starts with this genome, which resides on chromosomes that you get from your mother and your father. Everybody in the room started life as a single fertilized egg with largely just the information that's encoded on our chromosomes. Um, and it specifies these human differences. Every uh, human is completely heritable for these human characteristics and likewise for the chimpanzee. We would really like to know how this genetic information encodes these differences. What is it that differences between humans and chimps, what is this map between these genetic differences and the biological differences that we might care about? We can rephrase this question, how are we unique, and ask instead what makes us unique genetically. And it's a good time to ask this question because we have lots of uh, genomes from the great apes. Soon we'll have all of those, as we just heard, and get something like a, a satisfying answer of all of the specific places where we differ from the things that are most similar to us. There are about 35 million places in our genome where we're different than a chimpanzee and a few million insertions and deletions. Nine of our chromosomes have undergone these inversions, and our chromosome number two is the result of a fusion event. Um, this second biggest chromosome exists is two discrete chromosomes and the other great apes. So this, then, is kind of the playing field for defining the genetic basis of human uniqueness. We've got these millions of things to look at genetically and long lists of biological and behavioral and physiological differences, and we'd like to make a map. 
But that's a hard problem. There are many millions of these things, and understanding the, the biology behind them, how the genetic information goes through all the steps that Ajik talked about um, through gene expression and protein expression and interacting with the environment to make the differences between humans and chimpanzees. So is there any way to make this easier? Is there anything that's closer? Well, there is, and I'll tell you about that in a second. But first, um, for this audience, I thought it might be fun just to um, do this thought experiment. We know that, as we just heard, orangutans are critically endangered. Their numbers are dwindling due to habitat loss. This is true for all of the great apes, um, except, for, except for one, except for us. The great ape that uh, likes to do math and write poetry is doing great. It's kind of a revenge of the nerd story where we are uh, taking over the world and all these other guys who don't do that are finding the place where they live going away. It took some time for us to uh, have this scientific enlightenment to, to formulate a, a model of evolutionary history where we put ourselves in the, in the proper place. This is despite the fact that there are these great ape species that are, are not so distantly related to us. If it had been the case instead that we reached this enlightenment and, and started really making progress with this after these guys were gone and were left instead only with our closest relatives being things with funny faces and tails, it might have been uh, an even harder thing for us to do as a species. Okay, so things that are closer are all dead, they're all extinct, but we find lots of their bones and we argue about how they are related to one another. This uh, hominid fossil record is a, um, a fairly uh, contentious thing. The broad strokes of this, I think, are, are pretty well settled. And one thing that is settled, our closest extinct relatives are these guys here, the Neanderthals. They are morphologically distinct, group from humans, even from the modern humans that were contemporaneous with Neanderthals. So here is the cranium of a Cro-Magnon, the modern human, anatomically modern human, and from a classical Neanderthal. And if you look closely, you can notice some differences. There's this brow ridge and an occipital bun, and the brain case is lower and longer and slung back. And uh, postcranially, there are some other differences, but these um, focusing on the differences here kind of obscures the big picture story, which is that they're very similar to us morphologically in the context of the next closest thing that, that is still living, which is the chimpanzee. So Neanderthals and humans are, are morphologically very similar, and it turns out they're genetically very similar too. Temporally, Neanderthals show up in the fossil record about 200,000 years ago, and then they disappear about 30,000 years ago. Our species shows up about 130,000 years ago, and of course, we're still alive today. So for most of the time that we have been around, and for most of the time that Neanderthals were around, we shared the planet together. It's only a, a rather recent development that we are the only hominin that walks around the, the, the world. So we overlapped in time. Neanderthals geographically are, are mainly known in Europe, but their range we know now extended into the Middle East and into Asia. And um, so they would be a very useful thing to study genetically, and it turns out that this is possible. Before I uh, start talking about that, I'm going to um, do a little bit of the Ajit-style kindergarten genetics. And it turns out that this is um, very necessary for um, explaining the genetic comparison between humans and Neanderthals, because unlike comparing us with other great apes or other species, 
the, the genetic differences between humans and Neanderthals are largely not fixed differences. We talk about a human genome sequence and the orangutan genome sequence or the chimpanzee genome sequence. Of course, there are differences between humans and between orangutans and between um, uh, chimpanzees. And the difference between human and Neanderthal is largely the difference between humans who are alive today. And I'll explain why that's the case in a minute. But the, the point here of this slide is that kind of explaining inheritance in diploid sexually reproducing species like us. We get our genetic complement, our genome, from our dad and our mom. And our dad has two chromosomes, and our mom has two chromosomes that um, they got from both of their parents. If we imagine that these two chromosomes are just these intact bars here, the chromosome that comes from our dad was built just for us. It didn't exist in our dad at all in this way. Instead, it's a recombined version of the chromosome that your dad got from his dad and that your dad got from his mom. And after this recombination, you get this genetic material from your dad, and likewise, the same thing, this recombination happens in your mom. So if you look, if we say that the, the male is on top here, this part of your genome here came only from your dad's mom, not from your dad's dad. That bit of this chromosome is not represented by your dad's dad anywhere in your genome, whereas this part is all your dad's dad. So this recombination that happens through every generation means that we have our own particular unique genealogy if we go back in time. At some place in our genome, we may have our dad's mom's dad's dad's mom's chromosome bit or our dad's mom's mom's dad's mom's dad's bit at that chromosome. And it turns out that you can reconstruct genealogies of, of, our, of any particular haplotype, any particular region in our genome amongst all people who are alive today. And um, this, in some sense, must be true. There must be this genealogy that unites everyone. You can take any two people in this room, find the haplotype at some place in their genome, and find the time that they had a common ancestor at that place in their genome. This must be true mathematically because we know that at every level of our own personal genealogy, we have a factor of two more ancestors. So 10 generations ago, you have about 1,000 ancestors. 20 generations ago, you have about a million. 30 generations ago, you have about a billion. Well, 30 generations ago, if we say 30 years per generation, this is in the Middle Ages. This is about year 1100. You have a billion ancestors. There weren't a billion people on the planet at that time. Even if every single person was an ancestor of you, there just aren't enough people so that it's different. So you coalesce with every other person that you might imagine on the planet at some place in your genome. Okay, so if we imagine now these trees that we have put together, looking at genetic diversity that's alive today, on average, humans coalesce. If you just take a random part of the genome and take two random people, two humans will coalesce. They'll have a common ancestor for that part of their genome about 450,000 years ago. Okay? This is interesting with respect to Neanderthals because the population splits that would become Neanderthals and would become humans happened about 300,000 years ago. 
Okay? So if we could go back in time 300,000 years ago, there are no humans and there are no Neanderthals. There's the common ancestor of this. Maybe we call this Homo erectus or Homo heidelbergensis. But that population that lived at this time, it harbored genetic diversity. There wasn't just one individual. There were multiple individuals, and they had their own differences in their uh, genomes. And the diversity that was present then is largely the diversity that's present still today and was still present within Neanderthals until they went extinct. So at any particular place in your genome, you may be more closely related to a Neanderthal than you are to some other human. And in a different place in your genome, the, you may be more closely related to a human than you are to a Neanderthal. It just is the stochastic nature of um, this coalescent process and the fact that our gene trees are deep enough to include Neanderthals. Okay, so it's very useful then. It's very interesting to look at the genomes of Neanderthal because this is, in, in a way, just a deeply diverging human population that has genetic variation that's still alive today within us. Okay, so Neanderthals uh, sequencing DNA from things that have been extinct is, uh, falls in this field called ancient DNA, which got its start back in the mid-80s when DNA was sequenced from the first extinct organism, the quagga. And over the years, uh, more and more extinct organisms had DNA extracted and sequenced from it. These early days in ancient DNA were mostly using a technique called PCR, where you would take DNA out of a bone and try to amplify some intact fragment, and either it was there or it wasn't, and you would get some small sequence and try to make some sense out of this. 97, this was done for the first time in a hominid, the Neanderthal. This field has been revolutionized by this next generation sequencing that Elaine talked about that's making everything cheaper. Next generation sequencing was not invented for ancient DNA, but um, it may as well have been. All of the weaknesses of next generation sequencing, the short read links, um, for example, they don't affect ancient DNA because the fragments that we get are usually so small that a longer read length wouldn't matter anyway. Okay, so the field has really moved toward this direct high-throughput sequencing, next-generation sequencing, and it's enabled genome-scale projects of extinct organisms, not just looking at one or a few uh, targets at a time. Here's uh, what a few of the machines look like. What we have done is generate about one gigabase of data from these three bones, which are dated to about 40,000 years ago and came out of this cave in Croatia called Vindia Cave. And... One of the things that we have seen from just doing massive amounts of sequencing from all of the DNA that comes out of bones is that very little of it, if we take all of the sequence data and align it to everything in databases of all sequence that's been done thus far, mostly what we see are things unlike anything we've ever seen before. If it does look like something in the databases, usually it's a soil-living bacteria, and then just a few percent is Neanderthal. So mostly what the DNA that's in this bone is DNA from microbes that have colonized the bone in the 40,000 years that it's been sitting in the ground. But we focus on this few percent and um, have to sequence a lot to get up to genome-scale coverage of the Neanderthal. As I said, we did a little over a gigabase from each of these three bones, a smattering of sequence from these other bones that didn't have as much DNA preserved, and now have a little over one-fold sequence coverage. Okay, so one very difficult thing about doing analysis of Neanderthal DNA, because they fall within the variation of modern humans, it's impossible for most of these small fragments, which are about 60 nucleotides long on average, it's possible to look at this sequence and say that's Neanderthal or that's human because it's so similar. Most of these fragments will have no difference from human 
um, except for the uh, two or three percent of sequencing error that we get because it's ancient DNA. So to say for sure that it's really Neanderthal DNA, it turns out to be a very difficult thing. We did three different approaches to um, measuring the rate of human contamination. One was to look at the mitochondria. As Ajit mentioned, the mitochondria is maternally inherited. You have only one haplotype. You don't get it from mom and dad. You only get it from mom. So we don't have any heterozygosity to deal with there. We have complete mitochondrial sequence from these Neanderthals, and we identified 135 places in the genomes of this Neanderthal and all modern humans where every human looks different than this Neanderthal. So then every fragment that overlaps one of these positions, we can say, does it have the Neanderthal base or does it have the human base? And from uh, counting this, we get about 27,000 with the Neanderthal base, 73 with the human, and see that's less than 1% contamination. Likewise, we made this assay looking at the Y chromosome. These three bones happen to come from female Neanderthals. Females don't have Y chromosome, so the presence of any Y chromosome sequence is by definition then contamination. We saw four fragments that were unambiguously on the Y chromosome, and from this we can estimate less than 1% contamination. Another assay we did finally, looking in the, the nuclear genome, the autosomes, was comparing the genomes of five humans that we sequenced and look for places where two of the three Neanderthal bones, just looking at two of them, they differed from all five of these humans. So all five humans had one base and two of the three Neanderthals had a different base. In fact, they had the ancestral chimp base. And these are likely things that happen in humans early on and now all humans differ from all Neanderthals. And then once we identified these positions in two Neanderthals, we looked in the third one and asked, in this third Neanderthal, is it like the other two Neanderthals or is it like the human contamination? And did this in a round-robin approach where you test each of the three uh, Neanderthal bones? And from this, we can estimate also less than 1% contamination. So in this way, we bootstrapped ourselves into the Neanderthal genome. We didn't know what it was initially, and it's hard to imagine how you're going to know if it's Neanderthal sequence or not, given that you don't know any Neanderthal sequence. But these are the methods we came up with. Okay, so then comparing human, chimp, and Neanderthal sequence, aligning the three of them, we can ask how many differences are specific to the chimpanzee? How many places does the chimp have a different base, or the Neanderthal, or the human? The Neanderthal, if we look at the bases where Neanderthal is different, what we see is there's this huge excess of C to T and G to A. This is characteristic of ancient DNA. There's a deamination process of cytosine. It gets chemically damaged, and then it occurs to us as Cs. It also causes the Gs to be read as As. This is not real evolutionary change. These are not changes that happen during Neanderthal evolution. They're chemical damage that happen in the DNA of this individual Neanderthal after it died. And also, we see a very high rate of all differences in the Neanderthal genome that we have, which is low coverage, single-pass um, sequence reads of uh, this uh, Neanderthal individuals, and we're comparing it to finished genome of human and chimpanzee which has a very low sequencing error rate. So what we're seeing basically here, if there's a position where the human and the chimp say one thing and Neanderthal says something else, it's almost um, always error. 
the vast majority of those positions are just sequencing error. So saying something about Neanderthal-specific changes is very difficult to do right now, despite the fact that we have about one-fold coverage of the Neanderthal genome. The errors accumulate on this Neanderthal branch. However, this branch here is very interesting. These are places where the Neanderthal and the chimp have the same base, and humans are different. This lets us say, what were the changes that happened recently in humans, very recently, since we split off even from our closest extinct relatives, the Neanderthals? And if we just ask, what is the fraction of positions that look like this versus look like this, we can estimate how long ago, on average, Neanderthals and humans diverged from one another. And it turns out that this is about 12.7% of the way back to this common ancestor. If you take your favorite time for this, six and a half million years or so, that means this is about 800,000 years. So the average genome coalescent between humans and uh, Neanderthals is about 800,000 years ago. Okay, so we also, because we coexisted for a long time, there was this open question forever um, whether there's any genetic relatedness between humans and Neanderthals. We know we lived at the same time and um, overlapped geographically even. So to address this, there was this uh, analysis devised by David Reich and Nick Patterson and Jim Mulliken, where we took the genomes from five humans that we sequenced um, who, who were from around the world, one person from France, one person from China, someone from Papua New Guinea, someone from South Africa, and someone from West Africa, and took all pairwise combinations, all two combinations of each of these, the Yorubas from West Africa and the, the French guy, and find places where they differ, where there's some allelic difference between these two people. And then ask, what does the Neanderthal have? Does it match the person from France or the person from Africa? If Neanderthals are a clean outgroup to all humans, if Neanderthals split off from humans before there was any Yoruban or French or Papua New Guinea, and if all of that was later, then Neanderthals should match these two equally often. It should be 50-50. But it turns out, so here are the five humans that we sequence. It turns out that it's not 50-50. It is 50-50 if you compare the two Africans against each other. Neanderthal is equally similar to San as to Yoruba. It's also equally similar to any of the non-Africans that we compared. Any pairwise combination of the three non-Africans. It looks just as much like a French guy as it does someone from Papua New Guinea or Papua New Guinea as a Han Chinese. These are all statistically indistinguishable from 50-50. However, any combination between African and non-African, there was a, a small but very statistically significant excess matching between Neanderthal and the non-African. There's a closer genetic relationship between Neanderthals and all non-Africans than um, Africans. And this is interesting because this is the case even for the Papuan sample, even someone from Papua New Guinea, where Neanderthals are never known to have been and almost certainly never were. We still see this signal of admixture in people who live there today from Neanderthals. So um, this is uh, what that analysis looks like. These two are similar to each other. Any of these three are similar to each other. But any comparison between the two, there's more relationship between the non-African. So this is the model that we have to explain it. 
1 to 4% of the uh, genetic ancestry of any non-African now can be attributed, uh, traced back to Neanderthal. Probably this admixture event happened very early on when humans migrated out of Africa and first came into the Neanderthal range. They picked up this Neanderthal genetic component and then took it with them as they went over the rest of the world. This probably small population then expanded, so we see this in roughly equal proportions all over the world. Okay, so that's the Neanderthal genome. The Denisova is a, um, another sample that we found recently that has a very deeply diverging mitochondria sequence. Humans and Neanderthals are sister groups with respect to Denisova and the mitochondria. Not true in the nuclear genome. The Denisova versus the Neanderthal is about the same divergence, which is kind of odd. They appear to be a sister group, and in fact, if you look at allelic differences, Denisova is a sister group with Neanderthals in the nuclear genome um, compared to humans. So they're a very deeply diverging population that's more distinct from Neanderthals than any two populations who are alive today are, but they're more closely related to Neanderthals than they are to humans. We did this same admixture analysis and shockingly found that there is a very strong signal of excess similarity between the Denisova and people who today live in Papua New Guinea and not in these other places, a wider sample for this analysis. So in the last 30 seconds, I would like to um, tell you um, another application of the Neanderthal data and really the reason that we uh, started this project in the first place. Um, And that is the genealogy of humans versus Neanderthals across most of the genome looks like this. But what we would like to do is find the places where it looks like this where there's some adaptive mutation that happened in humans since we split from Neanderthals and was selected, uh, conferred some advantage, so it was selected and is now fixed in humans, places where all humans are more related to each other than they are to Neanderthals. And graphically, that looks like this. Sometime uh, in the past, we got the uh, mutation that let us do anything that's human unique with respect to Neanderthals, and we see this in all humans now. So that screen is something we're implementing and running now to find the genetic basis of uniqueness that separates even humans from our closest extinct relatives, the Neanderthals. These are um, some of the key people who worked on this project, the real visionary behind this, invented the field of ancient DNA and has been driving this project for decades is uh, my former boss, Fante Pabo. And these other guys are uh, very important people who worked on various aspects of this. And um, if you're ever in beautiful Santa Cruz, come by and see me. Thanks. I wanted, just before closing, to um, make you aware of the fact that Carter has a website that uh, I very much encourage you to visit. And one of the things you will find on the website is the uh, Museum of Comparative Anthropogeny, which is an attempt to collect all the information we have, shamelessly anthropocentrically, all the information we have that points to differences between humans as opposed to the other, our, our other closely uh, living relatives. And MOCA is a publicly accessible site that lists domains, 24 of them, ranging from anatomy to social organization, and they include genetics. And genetics is uh, p- uh, painfully incomplete at this point, but it does list uh, 82 different genes for which we have descriptions of how they differ uniquely in humans. And some of the genes talked about today, you will find here. I thought I'd just give you a very, very quick tour, starting 
alphabetically. So there is a gene called ABO, which codes for a very small sugar difference that defines your ABO blood type. And this, uh, this gene has a summary uh, authored by uh, Naruya Saito here. And you'll see font that indicates how sure he is about the statements, uh, ranging all the way from true to likely to speculative. And this gene is connected to other topics uh, in mocha. These can be in another domain, such as biochemistry, for example, uh, such as milk composition. So you can hop from the gene for ABO in the domain genetics to the topic of milk composition. Uh, as Katie said, it's not all about the brain. It can also be about the milk, which influences the brain. And from the topic of milk composition, you can find another link to another gene, the CMAH mutation that does the change in sialic acids. And that gets you back to the genetics domain with its now 82 entries, which of course are totally incomplete uh, after just having heard from the thousands of gene expression differences that you have Gilad talked about or the segmental duplications we heard about from Evan Eichler. But I encourage you to visit the Carter website uh, and to not only inform yourself about genetics, but about the next upcoming uh, seminars that you can find there. And would like to end by reminding you that you will not find all the differences. I mean, there's a huge body of work that was published recently on these uniquely human deletions that you will not find there. Um, but we have many there. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed this seminar, and uh, you can actually watch all the past Carter public seminars on this site, uh, UCSD TV. And I hope you will join us for the next seminars uh, uh, in October, December, and March. And I'll end by thanking our sponsors, the Mathers Foundation and Annette Merle-Smith as well as all the speakers uh, who I thank very much for making a, a very visible effort of translating genetics for non-genetics aficionados. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.